Welcome to the Firing Log Podcast Edition. I'm Odin, and I run the onagama-west.com website. On the guitar here is Grayson Brown, and on the telephone, or at least on the telephone some months ago, back in August, is Davy Renault from the far-off land of Kentucky. Our first woman's voice on this voice of the wood fire, this bastion of the Onagama, in fact. And her voice, it's an interesting one, well worth giving a listen. So grab yourself a cup of coffee, or tea, or whatever floats your boat. Sit back, and let's talk about burning wood, making pottery, beautiful things. One apology, though. I forgot to record a nice hello segment, so we sort of just jump into things rather abruptly. Brace yourself, and don't spill anything. You grew up working on a farm, as I understand it. Would you Mm -hmm. like to talk about that a little? Sure, sure, because I think that's why I wound up um, being so attracted to wood firing. Um, My dad, uh, my my whole family is pretty blue-collar. My dad worked at a factory, and he farmed as well, and my mom worked for the Postal Service. Um, I have a nephew who's like 14, and he sits around, he watches TV all day, and I think back to when I was his age, I was mowing like five or six lawns and cleaning this lady's house in the neighborhood on Saturdays and working for my dad and tobacco and hay and actually had more money than I knew what to do with because the only thing I spent it on was records. Um, So I kind of grew up with a really strong work ethic and I think it's really satisfying to, to work really hard all day and just get hot and sweaty and tired and then you take that nice shower and you curl up in your bed and you you have this sense of accomplishment and I think that comes directly from the way I was brought up um not working was not an option really and I don't know my my professor in grad school thought I was insane for wanting to wood fire he's like you know why would you want to do that it's so hard um but I find that kind of work very very satisfying I've always had like one foot in academia and the other foot out in the real kind of practical labor-intensive world. So it was just a good fit for me. So since you've um, brought up uh, graduate school in pottery, talk a little bit about how you started in the pottery field. Well, when I was in high school, my... um, high school art teacher made me do a semester of ceramics and I was very resistant because all I wanted to do was draw and paint. Um, But I learned how to throw on a wheel and then when I got to undergraduate school I still, I was kind of a snob I guess, I still thought if you were going to be a real artist you had to be a painter and um, you know got pretty involved with my 2D classes and then I think my first summer I took a clay class and that was it. I mean, I, I didn't have to learn to throw because I already knew how to throw. Um, and the real clincher about that was the difference in the people that were um, in ceramics. Um, I, don't know, I don't know how to put it. They were just more down to earth than, say, the painters and the printmakers. There was a lot of competition between everybody upstairs. All the 2D stuff was on the fourth floor and all the the 3D stuff was downstairs on the bottom level, and it was like two different worlds. And I was just simply more comfortable um, downstairs with the clay people. They were very generous, and, you know, we did things together sort of communally. And, um, again, that was just a good fit, too. Um, After undergraduate school, I got a, a really cool job at a record store, you know, back when we sold records. I think our CD section was probably two foot by two foot, and they were like hundreds of dollars. Um, and I, I sort of got stuck there for a while because I, I, I love music, and I was having a lot of fun at the store, and um, I always knew I wanted to go to graduate school. So when uh, the district manager started threatening to demote me unless I took my own store, you know, I quit my job, took my severance pay, paid off all my credit cards, and went to graduate school at West Virginia University. It, I understand there's an interesting story about how you chose that school. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Excuse me. Talk about karma. Yeah, the, I, um, I guess the kiln gods were looking out for you. 
what happened? Oh, definitely. I think everything significant that's happened to me in my life has been sort of like that. Um, I was working with a woman named Michelle Cox. She had my old ceramics professor in undergraduate school had retired and she had gotten his job and she took me to my first Enseca, which was in Philadelphia. And we're driving back through West Virginia. It's like two o'clock in the morning and all of a sudden her truck goes out of control and we finally get stopped and you know, make it to the side of the road. And she's like, okay, you know, I can change a tire. And I looked out my window and I was like, not this one. Because the tire was actually horizontal underneath the truck. The whole wheel had come off. So we were stuck in West Virginia for, I think, two days. And while we were in this hotel room, she was looking at a, a, a book that they had given us at Enseca that profiled graduate programs in ceramics all over the country. And I had a few applications out at the time. And she said, you know, the program here looks really, really good. I think you should call and talk to them since we're here. So I talked to the, uh, the department chair, and he said, um, just when you get home, send me your portfolio, all your statements. Um, I'll send you the paperwork, and we'll go ahead and run you through with everyone else as if we already had everything. And um, Bob Anderson called me at the record store one evening and told me that, um, he wanted me to come to school there, but he didn't have any money for me because all the assistantships were already taken. And I had been offered a total free ride at Auburn University. But I just had this gut feeling that I was supposed to go to West Virginia. And, you know, as, as always, I followed my instincts. And I think even after that first semester, he got me a TA. I think he called over Christmas and said, get your ass back up here, you're teaching. Um, so yeah, it, it worked out. I, I got, I had been in search of a program that focused on functional pots. Uh, I don't think there's a better teacher on the planet than Bob Anderson as far as utilitarian pots go, and that was three of the best years of my life. What attracts you to utilitarian pots? So much art eludes people, especially people like I'm from a very rural area in Kentucky. And um, one of the reasons I decided to make functional pots was when I was a painter, the more I pursued abstraction, the more detached I was from like my family and my friends because they didn't understand my work. Now, if I had painted flowers and barns and things like that, everybody would have got it. But that wasn't what I wanted to do. And functional pots appeal to everybody. You don't have to have a great understanding of of anything. The guy with a triple PhD could get as much pleasure out of one of my coffee cups as somebody with a sixth grade education. Um, I find that very appealing and, and just the connection that you make with people through pots is, is very attractive. I don't know that, that painters connect with people that way. I guess in certain situations maybe they do. Well, ex- expand on that a little, the connection between the artist and the uh, person who consumes the art. Well, okay, a cup, for example, you experience that with your hands and with your lips, and those are two of the most intimate parts of your entire body, and so I'm very thoughtful when it comes to handles and rims, um, because I know they're going to connect with people. Um, I have a cupboard of cups. Um, Some of the people I know have made them, um, friends. And it's just this amazing thing to open that cupboard every morning and decide, okay, what what am I in the mood to drink my coffee out of today? Um, And that's a real important part of my day, of my routine. And, you know, so many people, they get up in the morning and they got six cups in their cupboard and they all look the same and they don't think about that experience at all. The, The activity of drinking coffee is just, the activity of drinking coffee. It's not like this special thing if you're drinking it out of this cup because the cup has all this... To me, a cup contains all the energy of its making from the first concept to to the movements that you made with your hand when you're pulling the cylinder to attaching the handle. Um, to me, pots are just so human. It's, it's plain... Well, first off... 
You were talking about having a cupboard full of uh, cups made by a number of different people. And I'm, I'm sure you feel a connection with those people when you're actually using the cups. Do you get a sense of whether, uh, might that be something that's limited to potters or do you think other people, the people who simply buy cups and aren't potters, do you think they might experience the same thing? I do. I do. Um, you know, there are different, different degrees of thoughtfulness as far as people go. And I'm sure that there is some person out there somewhere that I could give a cup to and they'd think, oh, it's just a cup. Um, but I think most people do get it. And I think it is more special. The, the flip side of that is sometimes you'll give somebody a cup and then um, you come to their house and it's sitting up on the mail and it's obvious that they never drank anything out of it. And I don't know what to do about that. That's a dilemma. <laughs> Because uh, uh, when I make pots, I make them with the intent that they're going to be used. And I know that, that a lot of people collect teapots, right? They don't actually use them. Um, and I take that into consideration. But when making a teapot, I still, if you choose to use it, I want you to be able to. I want it to function well. Maybe you need to car- carry around a small ball-peen hammer and uh, <laughs> threaten people. I see you're not drinking out of that cup. If you don't start, it's going into the scrap heap. Right. My mother had these old crappy cups that I had made in in undergraduate school, and uh, every now and then I'd be at her house, and when she wasn't looking, I'd pull them out and I'd throw them in the bottom of the garbage can. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. But maybe she liked them just, you know, because you made them. Um, Well, I'm sure, you know, the whole mother thing. Do you notice whether you're a little hypercritical with your work? Yeah, I I think I am. I think I am, but I'm I'm also part of a a really nice clay community here in Kentucky. And uh, I I get together with other people and I'll be like, what do you think about this? Like I'm working on these jars right now and I haven't made jars in a while and uh, I'm toying with different types of lids. Um, and I haven't decided, you know, what's working yet and what's not. Um, but I'm not just going to sit down and, like, crank a whole bunch of them out un- until I resolve some issues. So, yeah, I would say I'm pretty hypercritical about my work. Has it been your experience that someone might want something that you've made and you'll refuse to give or sell it to them? I don't think I've ever done that. Now, we have our slide pots, um, you know, the things that you photograph and, and send to galleries and get in shows. Occasionally, I've held on to something because I know it's it's something that's going to get into a nice national show at some point. But um, one of the things I struggle with is, is commissions. Like, I really have a hard time with that. Like, I have a friend right now, and she's like, I, I want two teapots with cups. You know, by Christmas, and yeah, the, the teapot's fine, but I generally don't make cups to go with them, or I haven't yet, and so that's kind of a something I suppose I need to get over. Also, people want bowls, and I don't, I don't make a lot of bowls. That that request is a whole lot harder than that person thinks it is. Oh, absolutely! I think the bowl is is deceivingly difficult. I have a friend in Louisville, Tanya Johnson, that makes the best bowls. And I sit and I watch and I watch and I watch. But for some reason, it's it's a form that I struggle with. I, w- I was thinking um, before the bowls, I was thinking of the matching cups, matching the teapot. That's that's a really very difficult request. And, but, of course, you know, bowls are, bowls are a thing unto themselves. I think um, simplicity is a is a difficult thing. I think it's maybe easier sometimes to be loud than it is to be quiet. And uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Absolutely. I was just going, you, you're saying yeah, that that's true. Yeah, and, and teapots are just a, they're a challenge. You know, making all, all these parts and then assembling them so everything looks like it belongs together. And the, the teapot will hold my attention because I think I have to put more into it mentally Whereas the bowls, they're, I think they're more physical than they are cerebral. 
you know, you, it, it's it's this simple motion, it's this simple activity, and I, I guess I find myself maybe bored with it. I don't know. I've noticed every time I try to make something fancy, you know, with lots of various attachments and so forth, mm-hmm. it ends up looking just awful. <laughs> the simpler things typically end up looking better. seems like the less I touch stuff, the better it gets. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a... Uh, that's when I teach clay. I tell my students, you know, the more you fiddle with it, the worse it's going to get. Tell me yeah, a little. I think, Go ahead. No, I think people handle their work too much sometimes. Yeah, they work on it too hard. That's my. That's probably my prime sin. Tell me a bit about your graduate school experience. Well. I told Bob that I wanted to make functional pots and I wanted to wood fire. And so um, the first year was pretty difficult. Uh, I think right, I had been there about two weeks and we took hammers and tore down all the kilns because they were building a new kiln area. So we built a couple of gas kilns in his backyard. And I was playing catch up, to be honest with you. I was sort of surprised that that he wanted me to in, in his graduate program because um, my undergraduate teacher, God, I, I love the man, Bill Weaver was his name, but he was a very passive teacher, and he didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So, you know, no matter what you did, it, it always looked great to him, and you, you learn a lot. I learned a lot about philosophy from him. but um, And that was uh, one of my references said that I was basically self-taught, and I think maybe Bob took that into consideration. So the his undergraduates were much better than I was the first year. They used to, you know, kind of snottily walk through my studio and sort of scoff at my pots, and that, that was a, a, a difficult thing for me. Um, but I worked really, really hard, and when we got the new kiln area up, he built a wood kiln. I always felt like he built it just for me. Um, and after my first year... I was a studio assistant at Aeromont for six weeks, and I worked with, um, I think that was the summer I worked with Chuck Hines and mm, Jeff Astrike, maybe. And as soon as that gig was done, I drove to Penland and spent three weeks as an assistant there to Clary Ilian. And I think all that work over the summer really made things click because I brought these pots back and showed them to Bob, and he said, yeah, I just I had a feeling that you were going to, like, make some progress this summer. So my second and third year were just spent in the wood pile a lot, cutting and hauling and stacking and and burning lots of wood and and firing lots of pots. I got a better studio space that second year. One of the other grad students had graduated, and I I got her uh, Randall tick wheel, which I had been working on a power wheel and, and hating it. Um, and so things just sort of came together, and I was, I was, in the beginning, I was disappointed that it was a three-year program instead of a two-year program, but I got so much more from it that third year. I felt like I had just figured out, okay, this is the kind of pots I want to make, this is the way I want to fire, and then I had that third year to play with and work on my thesis and get my show together. Talk a little about your... Um Prejudice Against Electric Wheels. Oh, well, the body of work that I'm working on now is just almost impossible to do on a power wheel. I'm cutting and fastening, and I get this rhythm. And you can't be, when, when you're, when you're cut, making a cut like that to a pot, you can't be pensive about it. You've got to just be very fluid. And on a kick wheel, you know, I can get this rhythm going. Um, I've, always, I've always driven a... A standard transmission vehicle too. I've never owned an automatic in my whole life, um, and I, I relate those two things for some reason. I think you're more in touch with your equipment. Like if something tears up on my truck, I might feel it shifting gears before I hear something. So, um, and I when I lived in Casey County. I lived on this farm for five years after graduate school, out in the middle of nowhere, because. There was a Phoenix fast fire wood kiln and an Onagama kiln on the property and a studio. So people would come and go. You know, some some of my friends would move in and maybe make pots and fire the kilns for two or three months. Sometimes they'd stay a year or two. 
And uh, uh, a friend of mine from undergrad school, Jennifer Gandy, called, and she said, I'm graduating this year. Can I move in with you and make pots? And I said, sure. So she brought this power wheel down, and my other roommate was working on a a kick wheel as well, and I thought I was going to lose my mind for the first two weeks just because of the noise. My, my, My wheel is so quiet, and I like quiet in the studio. I mean, you walk into like a an undergraduate wheel throwing class and you hear, you know, about tw- in about 12 different places in the room. Um, and I work slow. Like those power wheels, ha- or they go too fast. They have too much power. I work slow and I feel just more connected with the clay through the wheel because there's not a motor. Do you find it is more difficult or less difficult to center with a kick wheel? Um, centering. I don't think it's any more difficult now. It might have been when I first began using one. Um, the wheel I, w- I worked on in West Virginia was actually a power randall. And the only time I used the motor was centering, just to conserve energy was how I viewed it at the time. Um, but that was the kind of wheel that the motor only made a sound when you engaged it. The rest of the time it was quiet. Because I know the locker bees that have motors on them, um, there's a hum the whole time, whether you're engaging it or not. And I just, I don't like that. I have a hard time with the fluorescent lights. You know how they'll make that hum? Makes me crazy. You're sensitive to noise. Yeah, I think I am. Um... I understand that. I'm hypersensitive to noise. One thing I think about uh, kick wheel is it, I think over time, once, I mean, in the beginning, it's harder than an electric wheel because, you know, you got to kick every minute or so. Right. Um, but I think over time, you become more efficient in your motions um, just naturally because, you know, you get trained. You've got, you know, you've got 30 seconds or 40 seconds to do this bit of the centering process before it slowed down too much and then right. you got to kick again. And right. um, I think I think uh, I think using the kick wheel improved I think it helped me improve a little just um, over over using the electric ones. And I, I really I wouldn't go back. I really like it. Well, I grew up, uh, grew up I, in undergrad school the whole time. I was working on those old Klopenstein wheels. You know what I'm talking about? They're a, tread, a big metal tank of a wheel that you stand at. There's a, a plate that, that you rest your hip against, and then you, you stand on your right foot, and you move this treadle back and forth with your left foot. And then this romantic side of me always thought that I'd want to work on a leech treadle wheel um, just because of Mackenzie and Linda Christensen and Simon and all these people whose pots I respect work on those wheels and then I uh, tried one when I was in Japan last summer and I still prefer my old Solner kick wheel. Let's talk a little bit about your wood firing. First off, you you mentioned that when you started graduate school, you said you were interested in functional pottery and wood firing. How did you know you were interested in wood firing? You know, that, that goes back to Michelle Cox again, the woman I studied with before I went to graduate school as a special student. Um, when she got that job, I walked into her office and saw these amazing pots. And it wasn't just the pots. It was like the surface on these pots. And I was like, how do you do this? And she's, oh, that's Anagama fired. So, again, karmically, uh, when I was in graduate school, um, Center College in Danville, Kentucky, built one of the largest Anagama kilns in the state, and nobody really knew how to fire it. So I remember, you know, packing up my tent and coming down to Kentucky for a couple of weeks and firing that kiln. And... I was just in love. Uh, the first summer I was a studio assistant at Aramont, that was the first time I'd fired an Anagama kiln. I fired with Jack Troy. And then I came back the second summer and fired with Chuck Hines. And and that was it. I was just absolutely in love. Uh, the process and the surfaces. What about Anagama firing made you fall in love with it? 
I love it all. I mean, I love loading. I love, I, I think I trust the process. I have faith in the process. I have more faith in an onagama kiln than I do in an electric kiln or a gas kiln. Um, I, I like being on my knees in that kiln and thinking about where I'm going to put the wads on this pot and then in basically giving those pots to the kiln and the wood that we're burning um, and, and letting the process do its thing to embellish the surface. I think it's 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 honest, it's it's straightforward, it references history and tradition, um, and it's back to the whole way I grew up. It's a lot of hard work, and it's very satisfying at the end of the day. Have you have you built a wood fired kiln for your own studio, or are you working in uh, shared kiln situations? Well, um, actually, I'm, I'm standing on my back deck looking at six pallets of bricks. I was supposed to build right. um, two years ago and wound up having breast cancer instead. Oh, no. Yeah, so it kinda, I, I kind of had to take about a year off. And uh, I've been making preparations all summer, and I hope to be building every weekend in September. But um, I have a, a, a good friend who's about an hour from here. She's a former student of mine, Suzanne Renfro. She has a, a single-chamber catenary kiln that we fire several times a year, and I have been firing with Matt Gaddy at Bernheim Forest. We have, have sort of headed up a program there, and we're just really starting to get it take, to take off um, doing workshops. We, we had a group from Missouri this spring come in. Um, there's a two-chamber wood kiln out there. The first chamber is wood, and the second chamber is wood soda. And I had not fired a two-chamber wood kiln before. So I was very, very intrigued by the whole thing. And it is quite different from anything else I've fired. And I feel like I, I learned a lot. Like Gaddy asked me one time, he said, he said, when you get your kiln up, you're going to stop firing all these other places, aren't you? And I said, of course not. I said, I will fire any wood kiln, anytime, anywhere. Um, I, there's nothing more fun than firing a kiln that you're not familiar with. Tell me a bit about the kiln you're planning on building. Well, as I am in my 40s these days, it's going to be really body friendly. <laughs> um, I love the effects of sand on the floor, but I'm going to have a brick floor just because I don't need to be snarfing up all that silica sand dust. Um, and it's going to be shorter and taller. It's sort of loosely based on the kiln that Simon Levin has at his house in Wisconsin. Um, but it's not going to be as tall because Simon has to stand on a bucket when he's loading the top shelves. And I don't want to get on my knees all the time and I don't want to stand on a bucket either. Are you designing your kiln so that it can be uh, fired by yourself or are you going to design it so that it needs many people? I the, the kiln at Danville was a situation where we would fire with like 20 or 30 people. And I don't want a scene like that. And yet I have no desire to fire by myself at all um, because I think one of the things I like so much about the process of wood firing is, is the community aspect. And there are certain friends that I have that I may only get to see two or three times a year when we fire a kiln. and. I find that, that during a firing, there's just so much information and, and experience and knowledge is, is exchanged between people during the firing. So I want to be able to fire with about six people. I don't want a mob scene, but I, w I want to keep it minimal. Why don't you want a mob scene? It's too distracting. It's too distracting. The Danville kiln would get circus-like. Sometimes, you know, people standing around and the, we, we fired the Bernheim kiln a few weeks ago and these guys were distracting the guy that I had stoked in the back with this big conversation and I had to walk up and just say, step away from the kiln, step away from the kiln. But um, I think it would be nice to fire with a really small, intimate group of people rather than, you know, a huge, have a, have a huge group. 
Now, I, I like the huge groups as far as getting wood moved, but... <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. Right. What kind of work do you intend to fire? And tell me a bit about the clays that you're using. The clays? Mm-hmm. Well, right now I'm using a, a standard grolic porcelain and a, a, a standard stoneware body just because I haven't had, I haven't taught clay in so long that I haven't had access to a mixer to mix up my own clay bodies. But one of the things I've been doing is there's this great clay that some friends of mine are digging out of the ground up in southern Indiana called Clax Mountain Clay. And it's just, it's, it's brown, really chocolatey brown, and it's got chunks of ochre and all kinds of lumpy, gnarly things. I just, I run it through a really coarse screen and mix it 50-50 with my porcelain. It's beautiful in wood. And this stuff right out of the ground will go to cone 12. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's beautiful. And it's, like I say, it's just really chunky and crunchy. And uh, I get these really gritty-looking pots out of Onagama Kiln sometimes, and people are like, well, you like that? And I'm like, yeah, this is really what does it for me right here. And there's certain zones in the kiln, like people will say, oh, don't put anything of mine near those side stoke ports because it always gets that, that yucky, crunchy gray stuff on it. And that's fine with me. I'll put all my pots in those areas, in those zones, um, because I love that stuff, as long as it doesn't interfere with the use of the piece. With, with your work, with your wood-fired work, do you find yourself often explaining to people how things are? This is not a defect. This is the way it's supposed to. It's supposed to look. And in fact, this is actually really good. Kind of that. Effect. Yeah, you. You have to. You you have to you have to educate your audience, um, because unless they understand your process, they're just a bunch of brown pots to the common person. Um, one of the things I did when I was living at that farm on Casey County, um, the Onagama Kiln, had just, it, it was about 15, 20 years old, and it was in a really bad state of being, and we kept band-aiding it back together, and it finally got to where we couldn't even fire it. So uh, my roommate, Jen Gandy, and I wrote a grant, the Kentucky Foundation for Women, to get money to refurbish this kiln. So we got the grant, and when we rebuilt, we ripped out the front arch and rebuilt it, rebuilt the horizontal flue, uh, put a new shed up over it. The shed had collapsed a couple winters before from a heavy snowfall. And uh, we thought, you know, you have to do a presentation to show them what you actually did with your grant money. So since it was from the Kentucky Foundation for Women, uh, we did an all-women's firing and then I found a venue for a show. So it was kind of a unique situation. It was a show of pots from the same firing. And when I set the gallery up, I, we put big photographs on the wall. And, and I had several areas of text um, just expl- okay, explaining the whole loading process, explaining the firing process. Um, and I even uh, uh, stacked a big pile of wood in the corner of one of the galleries just to make sure people would get it and uh, they, they just they loved the show and it was very informative and educational I think it really explained I, th- I think it made the pots more when people could see you know all these best fire pots sitting in front of the kiln you know and the, the loading with the wads and that kind of thing they, they really don't get how much work goes into the whole entire process until you lay it out for them and explain it. One thing, one thing you mentioned when we talked before was the idea of sneaking art into people's hands. Oh, yeah. Do you think your use of wood fire is uh, one method that you use to accomplish that goal? Yeah, I think so. Um, if, if you get, like when I get this kiln up, I guarantee you I'm going to have friends that are just going to want to come be part of the firing. They're not going to have a pot in the kiln, um, but they're going to want to be part of the whole experience. And I've seen so many amazing things happen. Like we fire, I fired the Danville kiln with my students one time, and there was this little girl 
who was obviously terrified of the flame. And I'd be like, come on, Melissa, stoke, stoke. No, 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 I'm just going to go get another wheelbarrow of wood. And um, at some point at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, I called for a side stoke, and there was nobody there. And she just kind of looked around, and she ran up and started stuffing wood in this kiln. And something about her changed that night. She had more confidence, I think, after that. But it's a it's a pretty amazing thing when you're dealing with that much fire that close and personally. Oh, absolutely. You know, I can, can fire a wood kiln for a decade and never get burnt badly, but I can't seem to manage to get a baked potato out of the oven without getting a horrible burn. <laughs> um, you're not approaching your oven with the same kind of respect, I think. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> um. And just so we don't miss it, talk a little bit about sneaking art into people's hands. Well, that was one of the the reasons I decided to be not just a potter, but a functional potter. Um, As I said before, you know, everybody relates to pots. Everybody understands pots. I still have friends and family go, oh, I can't believe you don't paint anymore. You were so good. Well, yeah, I was a good painter, but I can be a great potter. And I like, yeah, these people, they, they don't own any art, nothing. But they've got my pots in their house. And I feel like they function the way a painting on the wall functions. It's like, wow, that's beautiful. That's really nice to look at. It's, it's, it's very enjoyable to use as well. But, I, you know, when I'm not using it, I like the way it looks. It's very aesthetically pleasing. So, yeah, it's like you're infiltrating these artless homes with your pots. And it's, it's just universally accessible. There are no language barriers, even. Everybody can relate to a pot. One of the ideas you mentioned when we last spoke was the notion that good functional wear, good functional pottery, can improve the home life. And I'm wondering if you'd like to comment on that. Sure. Um, it, it, it's a drag being 40 but it's kind of interesting to have been on the planet that long and look back and remember how things were when I was a kid. And things were, you know, we had three television channels, and that's if the clouds were just hanging right. Now we've got this satellite with like a thousand channels, and there's never anything to watch on TV. Um, I worry that in the time that we live in, people's attention spans are going to get so tiny because they're bombarded with so much technology so quickly that at some point they're not even going to have the ability to look at art. Let alone handle it or touch it or really get to right, know it. Right. And, and there's so many just aesthetically benign, cold objects that we live with. I mean, even in Japan, you go to a restaurant, right? They're using commercial dinnerware, but it's all been cast from things that were handmade. So it'll fool you almost. You'll be like, oh, I'm eating off a real handmade plate, and then you flip it over and you realize it was cast. But still, the original was handmade, and so even though those were mass-produced, they had more life than the stuff that we eat off of. Now, I know Tupperware probably changed the world, but is there anything more hideous to the touch than plastic, unless it's styrofoam? Um, And there are lots of little things we can do, I believe, to just improve the quality of daily life, one of them being using handmade pots, um, nice handmade soap from time to time. You don't have to just go to the grocery store and buy, like, ivory or whatever is on the shelf, you can buy really nice handmade soap and make the experience of taking a bath even more special. But I think that we're going to have to learn how to do things like that, and it's going to be more of a struggle to do things like that because of the way our society is changing. And Go ahead. I, I just... I hate plastic. I hate styrofoam. <laughs> um, I uh, most plastics are are really lousy, but I think there are some actually nice plastics. And I've had this idea for a while that good 
plastics could actually well plastic can be I think plastic can be underappreciated by the sheer volume of junk that's out there but right there can also be very you know very high quality very interesting plastics but anyway I I don't have the skill or the knowledge to act on my notion that plastic could be good but <laughs> who knows who knows maybe it could be Talk about some of the shapes or the types of pieces that you make. I think one of your favorite shapes, at least you mentioned last time we spoke, was the pitcher. Yes. Yes. So talk about how that can be um, something that improves family life based on what it is and how it functions. Well, pitchers inherently, to me, are about sharing. They're about generosity. Um, And... And again, they're intimate in a way similar to the cup because they have that handle on them, and you you handle them, and the activity of pouring is a very uh, physical thing. Um, I just think pitchers and probably the next thing would be casserole dishes are are about sharing and generosity. Um, And those are also, like when I went to graduate school, those were the first two forms that Bob Anderson had me make over and over and over because you learn so much from both those forms. You have to tackle handles, you have to tackle lids, you have to tackle spouts. They're tricky. And talk about the ways the other pieces that you make um, fit into family life. You know, almost everything I make begins as a tea bowl just because I love tea bowls. Um, I'm I'm talking more of a you-know-me type tea bowl. Um, And my friends, and and these are friends who formerly, until I started making pots, they they had no idea what a tea bowl even was, right? They have cupboards full of my tea bowls now, and they're always telling me how how great they are for not just coffee or tea, wine sometimes. And I have a friend who's like, oh, if I just want a little bit of ice cream, I'll eat it out of your tea bowl. If I just want a little bit of soup, I'll eat it out of your tea bowl. I think they're very, very versatile and tea bowls to me are like sketches for for uh, larger projects like when I show my slides I'll show a couple of tea bowls and then I'll show a slide of like the jar that they evolved into or the vase that they became talk about the attachment that is possible with handmade pottery that is not possible with uh, you know, inexpensive, mass-produced cups, things that are practically oh, the plastic of ceramics. Right, right. Well, you don't, you don't miss a mass-produced cup when it gets broken. You got five more in the cupboard for one thing, just like it. Um, but I was, I was thinking the other day about this Clary Ilian tea bowl that I had for years, and how much I had used it and the other, you know, a student would come to my house and I'd be like, okay, you got to drink out of Clary's tea bowl um, because I knew they would learn something through that um, experience. And it, it got broken. It, um, it got dropped on a brick porch and I, I was devastated at the time. But, you know, I still think about that tea bowl from time to time. I still remember it the way I remember, like, my Aunt Gladys, who's been dead for several years now. And I was, I was thinking how odd it was that you can, you can miss an object the way that you miss a person who is no longer in your life. And that tells me that there is a really profound connection that has been made between that object and this person. And I, I never regretted putting it at risk. I never regretted using it because I got so much pleasure from using it. I learned something from it. I felt like every time I washed it, even. Um, and if I hadn't been willing to, to not be overprotective about the tea bowl, um, I would never have gotten so much from it, and I wouldn't miss it the way I miss it now. There are several pots that have gotten broken that I, I, I get real kind of weepy about sometimes, but yet I don't regret using them and putting them in danger. 
So if it had sat on the mantle and never been touched, it would still exist, but you wouldn't really care so much for it. Exactly. I would never have been able to make that connection, and I would never have learned the things that I learned from, from that tea bowl. I wonder if there's something there about how people approach life in general, because there are many people who take beautiful things and put them away and never touch them. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't get that. I, uh, my grandmother, who, who died quite a while back, um, gave me some quilts, and I think I have one put away. But you know what? All the others I've worn out. I've used them. And, and it was very meaningful, you know, lying under this big, thick, heavy, handmade quilt, knowing that my grandmother gave me that quilt to keep me warm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think you deprive yourself when you don't use things that are meant to be used. The, the whole motivation, of course, behind simply putting the thing in a safe place is that it doesn't get worn out, of course, or broken. But, right. But when you, it's, what is it? You're not going to experience the love for the object unless you actually do put it at risk of damage or, or becoming threadbare or breaking completely. And it, Exactly. It's actually worth less stored personally, although it may be worth more money. Now, I will admit, I have a Byron Temple Bowl and a Tom Marsh Bowl that are put away. But every now and then, I'll get them out and eat ice cream in them and wash them and put them back. But both those guys are dead now. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the business aspects of being a potter? You know, how you survive? Well, I survive by, by teaching. Um, and I'm not teaching ceramics now, which is sort of depressing, but I'm, I'm at a sort of a crossroads in my life, I guess, being 40. I teach part-time at two different colleges, and basically when school starts, I wind up being a weekend potter. So I'm looking at building this kiln to change my life. Um, I, I can't, I'm not going to go on the rest of my life driving all over the place teaching at, at different colleges for very little money and no health insurance. Um, I'm going to try and transition over the next five years into being a full-time potter and earning a living at it. A friend of mine just started doing um, wholesale shows. And I'm really torn because I, I don't know if that's what I want to do either. Um, I have a hard time, and it's why I'm so poor, I have a hard time thinking about money when I'm making pots because I make pots because I love to make pots and I'm interested in making pots. But when you start thinking about, okay, I'm making a product and I have to make a product that's going to sell, somehow that kind of taints it for me. And, and I, I'm, I'm a real purist, and like I say, I pay for it. I pay for it because I'm... I'm uh, pretty impoverished yeah, if, uh, with it. If you're going to make pottery that sells, you're going to have to come up with that way, with that special technique to make the uh, perfectly blue glazed with a little bit of right. white streaky uh, glaze in it um, stuff See, out I of the Anagama. And I don't I know if you're right going to be able, first. I don't know if you're going to be able to do that. Cause I don't sell. know. <laughs> I know. I know. The whole blue thing. Oh, don't even get me started on that. <laughs> It's such a foreign color. Clay is so beautiful, just just the way it is, exposed to flame with ash. I mean, why would you? It's it's like putting a coat of latex paint over it. Mm hmm. Um, I think I mentioned this in a different one of the other podcasts. I think blue. There's something universal about blue because um, I, when I watched uh, one of the Star Treks on DVD and I watched the special features, they had a special feature on the special effects guy. Uh -huh. And they had a saying, which was, if you can't make it good, make it blue. <laughs> what is it I've always heard? If you can't make it well, uh, make it big. And if you can't make it big, then make it red. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how do you, do you feel, 
do you feel daunted about you know there's there's going to be a lot of resistance i think to wood-fired pottery do you feel daunted by that no but i i feel that's why i'm so compelled to educate everybody i mean if you i i was uh i was sitting at a a microbrewery in Louisville one time and inadvertently my cell phone called my father and and they said, Well you're just babbling on and on about onagama kilns and wood firing and, and and my stepmom was like, It's a good thing you weren't saying anything bad about me But the only thing bad I could say about her is she should use frozen peas in the salad she makes instead of the kind from a can. That's the worst thing I can say about her. But I do feel like you have to you have to explain yourself and you have to you have to make people love your process as well. Like, I would like to activate my little community here in this small town I live in. I live in Glasgow. And um, I got a little show at the Chamber of Commerce up right now, and I'm doing a, a lecture at the Cultural Center next week. And it's to try and let people know that I'm here and that I'm getting this kiln up, and I would like for people... Like I said, I don't want a circus scene, but I would like for people to to come check this out. You know, the first thing I do when I fire is I'm going to invite my neighbors. Like, come come see what we're doing. Come check this out. And I don't know, but you make a fire big enough, you're going to have a lot of people that actually want to see it and want to participate. There's mm-hmm. something that, universal about fire that, that people like. You're the... Su- Excuse me. You're the second person in uh, in the last three days. I interviewed uh, I interviewed someone else on Saturday. Said the exact same thing about fire. Yeah. Um, We're mesmerized by it. Oh yeah, it's primal. And I've got this this lazy fourteen year old nephew. I'm really hoping to harness some of uh, his adolescent friends <laughs> and, and make them love stoke, stoking the kiln, or at least chopping wood. <laughs> Yeah, free, and what, what guys? What young man is not going to want to burn wood in this huge fire and 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 use an axe or a chainsaw? The chainsaw, chain, you know, dangerous, but man, they're fun, aren't they? Yeah, they are. You're, there's a, a, a sense of power when you're using a saw. I nicked the toe of my shoe one time, so I only uh, use a saw with steel toe boots on now. But it's a it's a tool to be respected. But boy, you can sure get a lot done with them. Well, Davey, I want to thank you for chatting with me about your pottery experience and your, and especially your, your wood fire experience. And um, I, I really hope things work out with you in the next few years as you get your kiln built and try to get your studio into, uh, work, into working gear. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I think things will work out. Um, just that karma thing usually comes through for me. I think I have a lot of faith in the universe.